from Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. In the large cities of Europe, millions of people live as first-generation migrants, many of them from the global south. Often, they are expected to make an effort to belong and develop a strong attachment to their new home. But what if their experience of belonging does not conform to the ideal of integration? Today, we talk with anthropologist and writer Omar Kasmani about migration and the feeling of thinness in the European metropolis. Omar, welcome. Hi, Jonas. Thank you for the invitation. Omar, in Europe today, global migration and the life of migrants in big cities is framed as one of the big challenges Europe is facing. And there are certain ways in which this story is told. How is this story told and what's your take on it? I think for me, what is interesting in this story, as you say, of migration are the contradictions that shine through the discourse, uh, through the public discourse, at least. And I think it's interesting to think through those contradictions. One of them has to do with the fact that migrants as as bodies that are, uh, let's say, in errance, uh, bodies that move across borders, there's a certain kind of mobility, which is quite anxiety provoking, because they're leaving their assigned places and arriving in places where uh, presumably they do not belong. So there is this mobility, which is anxiety provoking. And at the same time, there is an encumbrance, um, there is an impasse that is ascribed to such bodies. So they could be backward, not progressive, in the European sort of imagination, or they might be um, seen as bodies that are stuck between places, suspended as if. So there is this contradiction which I find quite interesting when I think about migration. The other has to do with the anxiety, let's say, that uh, questions of visibility uh, bring to the fore. And when we look at debates on migration, and especially with certain kinds of migrant bodies, and let's look at sort of, you know, uh, Muslim communities in Europe, there is a concern about, there's a concern about the presence of minarets, let's say, so it also translates into the architectural forms of belonging. And the debate on dress, especially, you know, when it has to do with Muslim women is a big one, we all know that. So there is a concern about, um, or there is a way in which communities or the state wants to take control of how these bodies are made visible. And at the same time, so the, the contradictory part is that there's also a concern that these are bodies that very easily withdraw into uh, or behind or beyond the, the gaze of the state, um, that they uh, thrive in what in German public discourse is called Parallelgesellschaft, parallel societies. So I find these contradictions rather interesting to think through when we think of migration in the European contemporary. So you say a big part of this story is um, that uh, many Europeans on mainstream discourses in Europe see the mobility of migrants somewhat as threatening. People leaving the places where they belong and come to places where they do not, at least not yet, belong. And when they are here, there is anxiety that the kinds of lives that they lead, the communities that they form, that they cannot be seen, that they're intransparent, and that the state, as you say, does a lot to make them seen. 
and this kind of yeah politics of gaze basically yeah and movement um i'm wondering what do you think is there a connection to the heritage and the presence of colonialism and how it structures the world we live in today Certainly. I think this desire or this demand for a particular kind of transparency and social disclosure, this idea that uh, in order to be accepted, uh, migrants must sort of yield or, or allow a certain kind of view into their lives and loves and their values and bodies also, comes from uh, or is tied to colonial forms of seeing, but also knowing and understanding difference. And I think here, Edward Glissant's idea of opacity is uh, very interesting to think about. Glissant speaks of how European forms of uh, knowing and understanding difference is premised on the demand for transparency. At the basis of understanding difference is this question of transparency. And yet he says that um, agree not only to the right to difference, but also agree to the right of opacity. And I think that is super interesting because it... In a way, um, this whole idea of Parallelgesellschaft, this idea of backyard mosques or people withdrawing into parallel worlds, so to speak, if we look at that from the lens of opacity in the ways in which Glissant speaks, um, one could see it as a refusal to be known solely on terms of the colonizer, right, or dominant public. So it's a way, the right to remain hazy to dominant publics is also a certain kind of a, I would say it's a queer act. Uh, it's a way of sort of speaking back to the colonial gaze. And it's not necessarily, and it's not always a withdrawing from the sphere of the political, I would say. When you say that it can be a political act to remain opaque, to stay amongst communities you have formed yourself, to not opening up to majority society and their political discourses can be maybe even an act countering colonial politics. I mean, there would be people who would brand that as identity politics, as particularism, and something that is potentially dangerous for living together in a diverse political democracy. What would you say to these kinds of critiques? I think the larger question is, how do we understand difference and how do we make sense of it? Um, so the onus is not only on the migrants to come and just suddenly integrate and sort of, you know. I think the, the ways in which I, I try to think about migration is also about how do migrants create a sense of the historical in the European contemporary. Where, and you, one does so in the full knowledge that a history will not accommodate us, right? Um, so there is a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of policing, uh, not only of geographical territories uh, when, when it comes to Europe. It's also about territories of futurity, of European futurity. How do we get access to that? How can I imagine my future in the European contemporary? And that has to do also with how do we create a sense of the historical. The assumption is that historical is not here. It's historically removed uh, through colonial logics. And I think migrants do that memory work. And I call it memory work. It's not just about, oh, remembering the past. And You know, earlier on I talked about how even the idea of remembering is seen as uh, people being suspended between worlds, as if they cannot belong here, and hence they have to think of their own pasts or where they come from or their own genealogies, inheritances, histories. But you have to do that work of uh, memory in order to belong in a, in, a, in a different place. 
I mean, a lot of times I think migration is seen as a question of where do we depart from and where do we arrive? And I think place is overdetermined in this, in this discussion. Uh, migration is also a tryst with history. It is an errance in time. It is a journeying in time. It's a desire to belong, right? Not just sort of belong uh, in the sense of integration, but this idea, memory work or, uh, or performances of remembrance are like affective ligatures in a way, yeah? They, these are limbs that allow people to uh, feel the historically removed or feel the future in many ways or touch, you know, those who are, um, to, to borrow Elizabeth Freeman's terms, uh, to touch the dead or those not born yet to offer oneself beyond one's own time. So in that sense, I also think that migrant performances of remembrance or the memory work they do is not a reminiscing of the past. It's not a recreating of where we come from. It's, it's an inventive act. It's a way to regather. It's a way to, to gather anew in migration. The, the bigger task um, that migrants face is to create this sense of the historical, to, to figure out what are the felt and flesh modes through which we can create a sense of belonging. And also, belonging is this sense of being long, right? Being bigger, uh, growing bigger in space and time, rather than just focusing on whether I or any other migrant is integrated in German society. That's a very interesting notion of memory work. Because if you think of migration in terms of how it is usually conceived, then you have people whose history, his, their biography, is at another place. It's removed. Now they live in a city now where they have no history and where also the communities in which they are situated right now don't have a history. Only those you know, natives who have lived there always and their parents and grandparents, they have the history. And then when they, remembering home, carrying on with um, traditions one associates with home, sometimes even much more devoutly than people, friends and family who still live in those places and are not that devoted to, to these kinds of practices. And you would say that this is not just compensating for something that is lost, but that is something to build a new present and a new future and that one should take this more seriously as a constructive political act in the larger society in which migrants live? Definitely. I, I would think that this is, um, and you describe it quite well, it's, a, it's an inventive act. It's a creative act of belonging, of gathering anew in migration. I talk about this work of memory or memory work because it's affective labor. It's not just, you know, one remembers when one is free. It's, this, it's not an act of leisure. Uh, it's, it's integral. It's critical to one's sense of belonging in the present. But that, as I said, is also... Uh, an exercise in future making of belonging in contemporary Europe. And you also write that one, one lives in a condition with the full knowledge that um, my histories are not a given in this context. They might be historically removed, forcibly removed from consciousness. They might just be geographically remote. I, and that is what I describe, uh, at least in my work, through the notion of thinness. Migration also means it's not just a displacement, it's also a dislocation, it's a temporal dislocation, it's a dispossession of history, of narrative, of story. And in order to, to sort of conjure up those stories, you have to do that affective labor. And that's why it is important, for me at least as a scholar, to think of the inward, um, the felt, the removed, the sparsely intelligible, 
something that, that evades capture or holding and yet has a bearing on the world. To think through um, thin embraces that um, the inward and the removed have a political bearing, um, that even if we don't see it, even if we can't grasp it, even if it evades comprehensibility or intelligibility at times, it is political all the same. When you describe thinness as um, an effective mode to relate to the city in which migrants live, that sounds as if this was a countering of integration, right? So it's not getting into the thick of it and um, becoming an integral part of the new city attached to it, but remain in a way distant from it and the attachment to the new city is then thin. Is that, a, is, that, is that what you mean, a critique of integration? First of all, thin is not always weak or watered-down relations in my work. I call it thinking thin through the thick of affect. It's a way to say that, of course, this situation is thick with all kinds of issues and all kinds of affects and emotions, but thickness is also, in a sense, the mastery of history, right? It's also the certitude that comes with colonial ways of knowing and understanding and dividing or explaining the world, so to speak. So thinness is a way to survive that thickness, uh, I would say. And it's also, on the one hand, as I said, it's also about understanding or exploring what is removed and what is partial and what is permeable, what is porous about the city. Thin is also about conditions of arrest, right? Relations that keep us attached in arrest despite their obvious attenuations. I don't think it is antithetical to belonging. I mean, that's the point I'm making in a way. So yeah, there are, there are ways in which one can belong and remain attached, uh, which do not correspond, let's say, to, to the thick politics of integration. When you talk about thin attachments, um, there is an obvious relationship to queer lives, right? This also means not to marry, not to settle down, not to bind yourself to one person, but also broader living a queer life in sense of not having the same job for 35 years, switching places. It's not becoming a member of the football club for the rest of your life. Um, God but forbid. All, <laughs> but all notions that I have mentioned that are connected to integration is then living a thin life in that sense, not a provocation to majority society by saying, I don't attach myself in the same ways, in the same strong ways as you expect me to? Sometimes it's not a choice. It's also how we navigate uh, the conditions we find ourselves in. Uh, and that's why I'm also thinking migration beyond questions of place and thinking through its affective labors, which have to do, at least in my reading, a lot to do with how we belong in time, how we attach ourselves to particular histories, inheritances, which are then, of course, about futuring in a particular place. But in a sense, it is trans-historical, but also extra-local for me. It's a bigger affective gesture of belonging. Yes, it's a challenge in the sense, or it's a, as you say, it's a queer mode of being in the world, uh, where one understands the world as more porous, one understands the world bigger than one's own life and lifetime. And I think that somehow, and I, maybe a lot of my work also stems from my own experience, I write through, you know, a lot of my writing is also auto-theoretical, I think that it is migration that allows people to think in this socially and politically expansive 
way. It's also a way, somehow I think migration also forces you to confront where you come from, yeah? questions that you've not really paid attention to before moving, let's say. And then you realize belonging in one place is not necessarily at the expense of another place. Migrants can cultivate a sense of belonging in various ways in multiple places and times, and it's a wonderful skill to have, I would say. It's a wonderful sense of the world. The idea that you have to sort of singularly and exclusively belong to one community, I mean, it's, it's already outdated. We all live lives with multiple attachments and affiliations. And I'm thinking about, uh, I think the only thing I'm doing is to say, what is the value, let's say? Or how can we read these attachments that have these obvious attenuations or have this kind of uh, prospect of thinning? How can we invest in these attachments without necessarily investing in the stability of those relations, let's say? And that's why I think that it's not about weak or watered-down relations. When I say thin attachments or thin relations of the urban, it's a way to think through historical abundance. It's a way to think through yeah, ways of being that are multiple and poly. You already mentioned your writing because as an anthropologist, um, your job is to a large degree writing about migrant lives in the city. And when one reads your texts, it's very obvious that you deviate from styles of academic writing which have become normal. There is an ideal in anthropology of writing in the form of thick description, where you basically try to capture all the details of a situation and explain how they are related to past, present and future cultural frames and social relations. When reading your stuff, one sees some stylistic features like you write in fragments, which are then rather loosely connected through uh, longer texts. You write of yourself in the third person, which seems to create some kind of distance between you as an author and the person who lives through these situations. So are these also ways of writing thin and maybe also consciously choosing not to do thick description? Writing for me, it's a response, right, to the field. Uh, and this all started with my research in Berlin. I was supposed to ethnographically observe a Sufi religious community in Berlin, a uh, post-migrant religious community. Being there in the mosque and observing a very intimate ritual of uh, what they call zikr, which is a, a Sufi performance of godly remembrance, I was constantly confronted with the idea that I'm in this very intimate setting as a migrant myself, observing another migrant group. And it created all these kinds of anxieties, let's say, of the field. And I started thinking about what would it mean if I were to observe myself observing these people and I started writing in the third person. But what thick description does, I think, is this mastery of anthropology, right? I know what's actually happening, uh, as you know, the anthropologist makes that claim. And that claim is made basically on what I call the been there, seen thatness of the anthropologist. Thickness here is connected to colonial forms of knowing. I mean, we know the colonial baggage that comes with a discipline like anthropology. And thin writing, uh, what I'm trying to do, writing either through fragments, through non-linear scenes, of daily observations in the city which are loosely connected and hence the text is also porous, it's permeable, it's also partial, 
right? You, you walk into scenes, when you read a scene, which I call scenes of daily loves, you walk into a scene and, you know, you do not know the before and after, and then you move on to another scene in the city, which is not chronological, it's not linear. But overall, when you read the entire set together, the constellation, there will be some resonances. What happens with this kind of writing is that it resists the anthropological urge for certitude. It takes a step back and it allows the reader to walk in and to make meaning. So in a sense, writing then only becomes a flirtation. It's, a, it's an affective move. It's a, it's a gesture. It's a move I make without knowing whether this move will land with the reader or not. But then also the text itself becomes porous, as I said, it stays partial because this kind of writing or thin writing as you uh, described it, is interested in cultivating a way of seeing that can doubt itself. It allows us to understand that the situations we observe as anthropologists have a before and after that we've not seen. So the possibility of a scene being otherwise, as we've observed, has to be somehow recorded or preserved for the reader. Omar, thank you very much. You're welcome.